You're listening to IoT Leaders, a podcast from SI that shares real IoT stories from the field about digital transformation swings and misses, lessons learned, and innovation strategies that work. In each episode, you'll hear our conversations with top digitization leaders on how IoT is changing the world for the better. Let IoT Leaders be your guide to IoT, digital transformation, and innovation. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the IoT Leaders Podcast with me, your host, Nick Earle, CEO of SI. On today's podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Peter van der Flout, who is Principal Consultant at the Chasm Group. Peter, welcome. Thank you, uh, Nick, and it's great to be here with you. Now, you know, for our listeners, some of them will know what the Chasm Group is, and some of them will be scratching their heads right now, thinking, what is the Chasm Group? Can you just tell me a little bit more about what it is and what you do? Yeah, Nick, Chasm Group is possibly well-known in a small group of high-tech entrepreneurs who are working with uh, disruptive innovation. The company is actually founded by Jeffrey Moore, who uh, is the author of the book called Crossing the Chasm, hence the name Chasm Group. Crossing the Chasm is kind of the uh, marketing Bible for high-tech entrepreneurs who are focusing on disruptive innovation. And what Jeffrey did, he codified what it takes to actually go from a startup to a successful scale-up by crossing the chasm and obtaining niche market leadership. That's right. And I've certainly been in IoT for, oh, I'm ashamed to admit it, but 40 years. And it's been my Bible throughout that journey. So I'm very familiar with it and it's extremely effective. But a lot of people will, won't know and will find your intro uh, fascinating. So perhaps uh, can you just briefly explain in a bit more detail the whole concept of the chasm, uh, which is central to uh, everything that you do? Yes. Uh, actually, the origins of the chasm uh, goes back to how innovation gets adopted, which uh, was a work from uh, Kenneth Rogers back in the, uh, I think, even the 50s or the 60s from last century. What he discovered was that there are different personas adopting innovation. And this is the kind of the famous five personas with the early adopters to the, the late uh, adopters. And you can derive from that the S-curve. So the S-curve is actually the, uh, the, the curve which investors and company founders are interested in because it only takes off once early majority customers start adopting. And what Jeffrey discovered was that actually pre-chasm, you have the visionaries and the techies buying, but post-chasm, it is the early majority customers buying, and that causes the steep growth and companies to take off. Now, a lot of companies are actually confusing early customers with early majority customers. And they kind of keep approaching them the same way. And if you do that, you actually end up in the chasm, you get stuck, and you will never turn from a startup in a scale-up. And that, of course, is detrimental to any uh, startup because you know uh, your dream will not be come to fruition. Investors will not actually basically might lose their investment or equity get diluted to an unacceptable level. So what Jeffrey, working originally in the Silicon Valley with a lot of startups, discovered was, well, if we create a playbook of how you cross that chasm, and that's basically by designing a go-to-market strategy around niche market leadership, you can actually overcome this chasm problem and hence do a lot of good, not only for the founders, but also for the shareholders. And, and you know, in the context of IoT, I think... 
we are absolutely at that point as an industry. I mean, I talked about it in the last podcast with our, our guest from Thales in the module space. You know, for years and years and years, since 2011, lots of big companies were predicting that, that by 2020, we'd have 50 billion IoT things connected. Actually, here we are in 2020, and so we're in a unique position. We can look back, and, and the answer is 11 billion, not including cell phones, but they were talking about things. And when you look at those 11 billion, you click it down, it, it, it's, t- it's a lot of experimentation. It's some early innovators, but we really haven't hit the sort of mainstream adoption on IoT. 80% of all the things in the world are still not smart. They're dumb. And so... I think Peter, you know, Vincent, your view on this. I think that means that we are at, we are perched on one end of the chasm. We are we are staring at the chasm, and I think the challenge for all of us in IoT is to cross that chasm so so we can truly get to that fifty billion and, and realize the business potential of IoT. Would, would you agree that that's where we are? Yes, absolutely. And I think what's behind here is a couple of concepts. So you cross the chasm basically going from what we call techie bias and visionary bias to the pragmatic buyer. And you know, techie buyers always like to experiment with new technologies, right? Hence that a lot of IoT projects are kind of done with what I call the product developers, prototyping, yeah. experimenting, and seeing, hey, is this technology something I can do with, right? Now, a techie needs to find a visionary buyer. The visionary actually is in there to build a competitive advantage. They want to be the first in the industry. And they lose interest, basically, if a lot of people do it. So once, uh, you know, once, and you see some of these IoT uh, initiatives where a visionary buyer basically said, okay, let's do a project. Let's roll this out and see what this can mean, right? Now, when IoT basically is in the chasm, it could be that there are a lot of vitamin pill experiments. And vitamin pill, I mean, there's not really a compelling reason to do something for a pragmatic buyer. The pragmatic buyer only engages when something is what we call a pain pill, right? It needs to deliver direct business outcomes, business benefits. So the trick is to experiment a lot in this early phase in the market and then pick a use case, which really you can take across the chasm. So it has to be a pain pill. It has to address a business need. But more than that, it also, you have to create what we call an whole offer. It needs to be complete. Visionaries are okay with projects. Pragmatists like to make sure you have a complete solution that works. And not only that, a pragmatist also like you to show some other pragmatists who actually have used, are using it and have obtained critical business outcomes with it. And that's of course, a little bit of a catch 22 of how you do this. So in the IoT world, you see vitamin pills. Now examples would be, you know, connected shavers or toothbrushes, which are internet enabled. Right. But you also have pain pill IoT uh, solutions. I call, you know, a lot of the IoT enabled devices, for example, vehicles, drones, containers, but other devices which are IoT enabled. So basically, you know, I've worked three years at GE Digital where we developed an IoT strategy. We called it industrial internet because we were not interested in consumer IoT things, but more industrial IoTs. And we looked at 
two axes. We looked at asset optimization and at operations optimization. And asset optimization, the key thing was, how can I make dumb machines smart so that I have less downtime or no unplanned downtime? And operations optimization was, how can I make assets smart so I can increase the throughput through a hospital network? I can increase the throughput through a railroad network, or I can increase the throughput of a wind energy park. And those things, we had actually had demonstrable results. So those were niche applications, use cases, which you can put across the chasm, solving a key problem, creating a whole offer around this one. And I think we are right at the moment where you do see some of these examples and they will take off. You know, I think SI, you, you kind of, you uh, have a project with uh, Costa Coffee, yeah. right? Around a vendor and vending machines, which are IoT enabled. You know, you clearly can make a business case to a vendor machine owner that they actually can increase the revenues because they know that the machine is always on. So the downtime will be less. And no, it's not just that. Uh, it, actually, I, I totally agree with you. And it's not just that. I mean, in the case of Costa Express, the vending machine, the ROI isn't the ability to serve a cup of coffee from a machine. I mean, that that's what all vending machines do. But what it's what you're talking about is that as you cross the chasm, the business justification gets unlocked. The, the budget gets unlocked. But the budget comes from a cross-functional process optimization. And it also comes from the ability to competitively disrupt. So it could be simplification of the supply chain because uh, they have one coffee machine they can put in, in anywhere in the world. So it's one product SKU, so they save yep. money from the supply chain. But actually, the, the business model disruption is that they don't, those, the Costa Express coffee machines are never in a Costa shop. They, they're actually in somebody else's premise. So what they're disrupting in next generation retail is the fact that you don't need a shop to sell coffee. You just need a smart machine. And, and I think in the post-COVID world, with the supply chain, the pressure on financial pressure to optimize manufacturing, supply chain, distribution, warranty claims, and the next generation disruptive business model leapfrog that people are doing, we're going to see more and more of, of those. And, you know, when I talk to customers, Peter, and that leads me to my next question, they've got plenty of ideas. Everyone says, oh, I've got this great disruptive idea. I, I, I can leapfrog. I can save my company money. So there's no shortage of ideas, but often, you know, it's the small companies, it's the startups that seem to be the most nimble. It's the, the startups always, the little guys always eat the big guys. You know, you mentioned Silicon Valley. What about the big guys? You know, how does a big company go about a structured process for innovation? Because yeah. it, it seems like the big guys find this much more, despite all of their assets, this is really difficult for them, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question, right? And of, of course, uh, there are some people, academics, who claim established companies cannot innovate, right? Or disrupt, cannot disrupt, which is, of course, nonsense. You and I know that. I mean, you only have to look at Apple, which disrupted multiple times, right? Categories like uh, the music industry, like the, 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 you know, the phone, mobile phone industry, etc. So big companies, actually, if they combine the smart things which startups can do, with the strengths a established company has, uh, which startups don't, for example, access to customers, access to cheap capital and other things and, and talent, you actually can, can significantly uh, disrupt as a large player and make markets. Now, 
There is a, however, a trick to that. And uh, our last, uh, the, the latest book, which Jeffrey wrote, is called Zone to Win. And the insight here of that book is basically that uh, established organizations should zone the organization. And if you think about innovation, basically you have disruptive innovation and continuous innovation. Now, typically 70% of an, of an innovation comes from continuous innovation. Think about the iPhone version 10, 11, 12, et cetera, right? Think about the next Tesla. There's nothing disruptive about that anymore. But what these companies have to do is they have to keep walking the adoption, innovation adoption curve, right? Because the early majority we spoke about, but there's also a late majority. So the S curve keeps taking off, keeps growing. And that's all after a while coming from continuous innovation. The disrupt, and, and you handle that in what we call a performance zone uh, matched by a productivity zone. A productivity zone is basically identifying processes and programs to make yourself more efficient and effective. And you will become more profitable. Performance zone is basically executing like crazy to make sure you keep adding new markets, you keep growing your revenue streams. Now, disruptive innovation, on the other hand, do not live well in those two zones. For that, you need to set up a separate zone, which we call the incubation zone. And the incubation zone is what it says. You incubate ideas. You experiment with ideas. You actually play for options, right? Now, that by itself doesn't give you the next booth, but what you, it allows you to do is via a kind of lean startup approach, fail fast, learn fast uh, and cheap, you identify those options which you elevate to a big bet. The big bet has to be placed in what we call a transformation zone. And this transformation zone is what most corporates do not have or don't, are not aware they need to have it. The transformation zone is basically, Nick, the journey between something being very small, let's say 1% of revenues, to becoming 10% of revenues. It's like if you adopt an organ, you know, you cannot throw it over the wall to the performance zone because it is too small, right? So the existing system will just not accept, accept it. You need to nurture it to grow it via building niche market leadership, basically, so you get it across the chasm. You win a couple of what we call niche market segments, and then you can move it over to the performance zone and start adding a new big bet into your transformation zone. So my advice to established players is, it's not only innovate using different processes, but also zone your organization. And as you can imagine, each zone comes with its own leadership styles, KPIs, measurements, funding ways, governance structure. And that's, I think, the big contribution of the book Zone to Win, which by the way, it's, it's really catching on fire because you know, although Jeffrey is now 70 plus, I mean, he's nonstop on the road, kind of helping executives understand this concept. Yeah, and, and does the book, uh, I must admit, I have to confess, I haven't, I haven't read it. I've read all the previous books by Jeffrey. And so this one's definitely on my Christmas reading list. So let me ask you a question about it. I've seen many of these over my career, um, these innovative incubators, in-house incubators that, that failed. Yeah. And as you say, there wasn't a transition zone. Uh, and one of the reasons that they failed was that they became inherently a threat to the larger organizations. I mean, if you just take one of the things about IoT is that we're going from products to uh, service or, or from CapEx to OpEx, from fixed price to annuity. 
And so a lot of the innovation is where you take a product and you turn it into an annuity, an experience, a pay, pay for it as you use it. But that can actually cause, you know, a lot of problems that when you've actually proved the concept, you've got your 1%. If you toss it over the wall, you, you, you're tossing it into the organization that kind of doesn't want it because it threatens all of their metrics. So it seems like CEO level support for the transition zone and, and giving them protected budget and also internal protection when people say, what are these guys doing? They're, they're disrupting our big line of business that's been our cash cow for years. I, I think issues like that are really important. I'd love your views on that because you know we are talking about disrupting companies and, and nobody likes change and, and nobody likes their, metri- their metrics drive their behavior. So, you know, the, the, the support, the top-down support from the CEO is pretty critical, isn't it? Yes, it's extremely critical. We actually call uh, call transformation zone initiatives are the CEO signature. So imagine, Nick, you kind of, you know, you get to lead, I don't know, IBM or and pick any large company, right? Your claim to fame will not be to actually keep growing the performance zone. Your claim to fame will be to, you know, to build a complete new business and make sure that the company is set for the next 10 years. So the, the, the growth engines, that's what transformation zone initiatives are, right? New growth engines for the company. These type of growth engines also are much more critical to your valuation than, you know, than performance zone initiatives because they are basically are maybe all technologies, right? So adding new growth engines on an ongoing basis, and typically this might happen every two, three years, right? Because the transformation zone initiative is not something you do for a year. It has to be that two, three years. You have to have patience. It requires top leadership focus. It requires protection, but it also requires putting on the best people you have and to ensure that everyone in the company rallies you know, behind that and does not sabotage this initiative. So sometimes you have to put it in a transformation zone to protect it. Sometimes a startup initiative can can be added to a performance zone if the existing structures allow it and don't work against it. But in most cases, a specific transformation zone initiative will actually be the right uh, approach. Fully endorsed by the CEO, otherwise it won't work. So let's uh, bring this real for our customers in the context of IoT. And, it, you know, across your many years of experience, and especially recently, Peter, you must have seen some pretty innovative, disruptive IoT case studies. Can you share any stories of any of those that you've come across recently? Yes, Nick, it's a great question. Let me pick an example which combines some of these concepts we have uh, spoken about, like crossing the chasm, zoning the organization and in particular using an IoT example. So I worked at GE Digital and as one of the uh, projects we worked on was with the healthcare division or business, which by itself is a very large $18 billion business at that time. And they had acquired a company which measures and registers radiation. Now radiation is of course highly critical for patient safety, but what they found out was that there's a lot of variation in how much those patients get depending on who administers the machine, depending on the day uh, or the hour in which the machine is registered. So what GE had to do was build a holistic approach for dose management, which obviously you want to measure and register. And in order to do that, you had to IoT enable the radiation equipment by the 
But then you also had to network the equipment uh, and not only network the equipment within the hospital, but kind of in the hospital system so that you can actually track if I am a patient and I go multiple times, am exposed to those in the hospital network that actually the operator will know how much I have been exposed and what the safe doses would be, et cetera. So only by IoT enabling these machines, you actually elevate these machines from becoming silo or isolated islands, right? Operated by an expert, create them into a network, making them smart so that you elevate any operator to become the best operator, so to speak, using the software. So that's a small example. Now, this company was, uh, GE was struggling because it, you know, the, when they bought it was probably they had 10, 20 customers, a handful, in France. And what we had to do is we had to actually elevate it, create a much larger concept and create a, what we call, uh, we moved it from the incubation zone in a transformation zone. We built a dedicated team, a go-to-market. We actually uh, appointed a high potential leader to run it, who was directly reporting to uh, one of the CEOs in GE Healthcare, empowered full sponsorship, we funded it milestone-based, and within four years, GE actually managed to sign up 1,000 hospital networks for this dose management system. So clearly, you can see here, a, you know, a large company can make markets. Of course, they were leveraging the strengths of the startup as well as the strengths of the established companies because GE Healthcare, of course, had access to a lot of customers. But what the the secret here was to have a dedicated team only focusing on those going across the company and building a strong value proposition for the customers. You know, I, I'm going to share a, a case study with, with you. It's one of the things I do on the podcast is I, I we have 2000 customers and, and it puts us in a wonderful situation and we, all we do is IoT and it puts us in a wonderful situation to see some really innovative case studies. I talked on a previous podcast about the IoT enabled diaper or nappy, which uh, is a great example. I'm going to actually talk about a company now that I met in South Africa. You know, it's one thing IoT enabling an, an existing electronic product like a machine or an instrument, but the idea of IoT enabling powdered spice. So, so this blew me away. So one of the world's largest spice companies is a family-owned company in South Africa called Freddie Hirsch, and, and they import spices from the you know, Indian Ocean, and they've been selling spices. And they, they, they got around and they started thinking, how could we actually sell more spices in an innovative way? In fact, how can we get people to buy our spice and never buy the competitors? So they said, well, who, where's the big growth for spices? It's not selling bottles in supermarkets. It's actually in sausages, flavored sausages. So they actually started making machines for butchers to make sausages. Okay, so they went into the sausage machine business. And then they said, okay, what if we IoT enable the hopper on the machine so that actually um, it could sense whether or not Freddie Hirsch spices were in the hopper versus our competitors' spices. So they did chemical analysis on the uh, samples of the spices in the hopper. And then they actually uh, created a, a cellulose casing rather than a pig's bladder or intestine, whatever it is, a casing for sausages, which would appeal to the uh, vegan market because you have like apple and chutney, whatever sandwiches with spices. And they actually, this cellulose casing for the sausages can react in a very favorable way with the spices to bring out the taste of the spices. So essentially, it, it's, it reminded me of 
uh, HP Connected Ink, you know, my inkjet printer uh, in my house. I don't order ink anymore. It, it senses when I need ink and it orders it for me. Well, the Freddie Hirsch machine, butcher's machine, actually senses that it's got the right uh, spices in there and automatically reorders the spices. So here you have a family spice company in South Africa exporting machines to butchers in North America and actually increasing sales of their core product by IoT enabling a piece of equipment uh, and linking it to their spices. And, you know, if a spice company, I think they're about over 100 years old, if a 100-year-old's family-owned spice company can IoT enable and disrupt, there's no limit to what what's out there, is there? No, no, there is not. Uh, I think it's it's a great example, right? And, you know, we will hear many, many more. So it's uh, it's still early days for IoT. Internet has been internet for people. But I think the next uh, 10, 20 years will be the internet of things. And uh, as what said, it always takes longer because, you know, you have to experiment. You have to make sure that if you cross the chasm, not only you focus on pain pills, but also create whole offers so that the pragmatist is convinced it's working, right? And that other pragmatists can show business uh, results with them. That's a matter of time for many of those initiatives. And once, you know, as to your example, this spice company can show, hey, I can do significant damage to my competition, right? You know, the industry will follow. And they might be copied by companies in another industry or competitors, you know, of this company will say, hey, I need to be on board as well because the world is changing very much like, uh, you know, like we, uh, other examples we have seen and discussed before. And, and, and what fascinates, I think, all of us is the, the thought leadership that, 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 that these people who are crossing the chasm, it, it, it often starts with a, with a great idea and great thought leadership. And then they start with the idea and then they take it through and they actually produce something which which changes the business model, which disrupts the market, disrupts their competitors, which leads me to my last question. You know, on this podcast, we like to bring thought leaders and, and visionaries to our audience. You know, which companies or digital thought leaders have you seen out there? And, and actually that you, you would recommend that maybe we should get on a, one of a, our future shows. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of very much interested in uh, people like Kate uh, Raworth uh, with the donut economics, right? It's the whole principle that growth for the sake of growth, you know, those times are uh, passe, right? We, we kind of are dealing with climate issues. We are dealing with inequality. We have the ESG standards. You know, Kate Raworth wrote about the donut economics. So it's all about innovating to create responsible growth, as I call it. I'm currently involved in, in an um, initiative which is sponsored by the province or kind of the state where I'm living here in the Netherlands. And they actually have gone out of, yeah, they do something very unusual for a government. They actually engaged a design um, expert, André Knoll, who founded Innomics, to actually help them build an ecosystem, bringing all these entrepreneurs together focusing on things like ESD or donut economics type initiatives. So think, think about you know, food, think about last mile delivery to kind of reduce CO2, all these type of things. And it's now up and running for, I think, two or three years. And you see kind of the energy going in that ecosystem around uh, entrepreneurs, because I firmly believe who can change the world, those are the entrepreneurs. Whether they are startups, or whether they are intrapreneurs, right, startup type people, 
uh, entrepreneurs within established uh, companies. So, so Andre kind of has this vision to kind of make this all work and he, he kind of gets everyone engaged, including uh, myself. So I help, of course, with, with crossing the chasm type of concept. So, so, you know, and there are a lot of IoT examples here in it, particularly around the last mile delivery. For example, is a company called uh, Avanet EasyPack who kind of turns the whole delivery of packets upside down. Instead of the supplier telling you when the packets arrives, right? They actually empower the buyer to tell the supplier when and where the packets should be delivered, including uh, smart places where, where a delivery organization can actually- uh, oh, yeah. A lockbox, like a lockbox. Yeah, yeah, a smart yeah. box, uh, exactly, yeah. So. Yeah. And of course, what they try to do is get the congestion out of particularly cities, right? Because it's crazy that we have all these delivery trucks running off and on. Yeah. And there's no need for it because if you think about it, and they've done a an, research with a uh, logistics company that, you know, most people might live within 500 meters distance from places which they frequent, be it uh, bus stops, be it, you know, kind of... A, uh, stores, whatever. So instead of having all the boxes delivered to your home, why not drop it to a place where you will be anyway coming or pass passing along your way from work or whatever? Yeah, right? and 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 help the environment, make it more greener. And and that's a, a great place to uh, finish it. In fact, Amazon are obviously doing very very similar things with their uh, Amazon Lockers project, which shameless plug for SI. SI, I do all the connectivity globally for uh, Amazon's. Uh, lockers peter it's it's been really fascinating we could we could go on but it would be a very long podcast if we did so can i just say thank you i think the chasm group as i said at the beginning i've i've known the chasm group for many many years and actually jeffrey i've met him many times and and he truly is a visionary for the whole iot business and if anybody hasn't read Crossing the Chasm, and I'm sure there must be some people somewhere who haven't read it, I, I would definitely encourage it. But also the latest book, as I said, that's on my uh, Christmas lockdown reading list. And so let's uh, wrap it up there. Thank you for everyone for uh, listening. Please tune in to the next episode of IoT Podcast. We will once again bring you uh, some thought leaders in this space, some ideas to inspire you, and some uh, case studies of people who really are uh, crossing the chasm and doing this disruption Peter has been talking about. But in the meantime, Peter, thanks again. Thanks for joining me and thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks for tuning in to IoT Leaders, a podcast brought to you by SI. Our team delivers innovative global IoT cellular connectivity solutions that just work, helping our customers deploy differentiated experiences and disrupt their markets. Learn more at SI.com. You've been listening to IoT Leaders, featuring digitization leadership on the front lines of IoT. Our vision for this podcast is to be your guide to IoT and digital disruption, helping you to plot the right route to success. We hope today's lessons, stories, strategies, and insights have changed your vision of IoT. Let us know how we're doing by subscribing, rating, reviewing, and recommending us. Thanks for listening. Until next time.